this week we've got a fan- fabulous program lined up for you, going right through till about quarter past one today. So it's not the normal hour. We've got an extra 15 minutes. Uh, we'll be bringing in a conversation about where's the best place to invest in property, South Africa or England? Hmm, interesting question, that one. But uh, the best place to invest is well known to David Shapiro, who, as always, <laughs> kicks off our program. Dave, um, best place to invest in 2020. Are you going on or offshore? Now offshore. And, and Alec, it's not a political uh, decision. It's more opportunistic. And, and I think that, you know how I explain it, is that if you look over the last decade, uh, the companies that have been behind the move in uh, the S&P, uh, it's not really the U.S. economy, but rather the companies underneath that, uh, whether it's Apple, Amazon, Alphabet. These are all tech companies, and really they represent the way that we, we live our lives today. More and more data, uh, more reliant on the cell phone, which I'm talking on at the moment, or the smartphone. You're full of technology, the way that you're running your business now, um, and so on. And we still think that uh, this trend is going to continue in many industries. So what going offshore, and sadly, we haven't got much um, room to do that other than maybe NASPES or Process or companies like that. Uh, that that remains the only representative. But otherwise, you know, most of our, our leaning is towards technology. Mm. Well, at least we've got NASPES, and they've done incredibly yes. well. I had a good interview uh, with Bob van Dyke, uh, the chief executive of Process, in the week, and there was there was a lot to uh, to absorb from it. But I guess one of the things that got me quite excited was the way that the share price of uh, Process and mm. NASPES had gone up because they walked away from that deal for Just Eat. Yes. Now, you, you've you've watched these corporate mm. actions for a long time, David. That's got to be good news. It has. And look, it, it, there's plenty of opportunity. I mean, if you've got a, if you've got a, a, a bulging wallet, I think the one thing in technology is that you will find opportunity. Um, he's particularly interested in, um, in food delivery, you know, with food delivery, go, uh, with food delivery, there's a whole lot of other elements that you can deliver. So, uh, if he missed out on this one, um, there's going to be something else. I don't think this is the end of the line for him. Uh, the market wants him to do something. I think that's the reason that he listed process. He took it overseas to Amsterdam to give him the opportunity, number one, to, to get, you know, to, to, to look for, uh, businesses and also, uh, to use the balance sheet there. So I, it's not the end. I think also, Alec, what's, what's interesting is that, um, you know, the Chinese numbers that we got last week just point towards a little bit of, uh, stable, you know, steadiness there. I think generally things are looking good. Uh, Alibaba has been a big favorite and is doing well. And it's just a matter of time before Tencent takes off as well and picks up again. Well, the share so, price of Tencent mm-hmm. has been running very hard. Eh? Yeah. So yeah. Um, you know, it was interesting to see the Chinese economy grew by 6.1%. <laughs> yeah. And it's the slowest in like three decades. Wow. But I, you know what? That's wrong. First of all, you've got to understand that if you're, if you're growing by 6% every year or 10%, your economy gets bigger and bigger and bigger. It's very hard to 
you know, to expect the kind of growth that we've seen over the last decades, uh, t- three decades to continue. Of course, it's going to get smaller. You know, in absolute terms, um, things are still pushing hard there. And I, it's certainly not the end of China. And I think most most investors uh, have got their eye uh, you know, pointed at China. Uh, Bloomberg's had a, a conference last week and, uh, you know, continually looking for opportunities there. So, um, you know, six, I can live with 6%. You know, when lost is South Africa there? I mean, we, we're going to be less yeah. than one this year. You, yeah. you, you'd think the penny would drop in Pretoria, that the, the Chinese have a similar political uh, yeah. agenda to the ANC, but they have a very, very different economic agenda to the one that's being followed in this country. So, so sad that, that we don't have that uh, collaboration. No. No, I, I, I think we've got a lot to do. Um, I, I'm concerned having heard the Reserve Bank talk last week and, and when they set out the growth prospects, Alec, you know, that's what, that's what worries me. I'm not worried. I, yeah, I listen to the inflation and I listen to all the noise that comes out of there. But when he gave forecasts, this is Lesetra, when he gave forecasts for this, this year, uh, sorry, last year that's passed at 0.4% and then for the next three years, uh, the Reserve Bank doesn't expect us to grow above, you know, I mean, uh, above 2%. Um, that's, that's very troubling. You know, for the next three years that we're going to remain below 2% is, is, is very worrying for this economy, particularly where we need, as you mentioned, plus 5% you've growth. You've got to be a stock picker. You've got to look for yep. opportunities. Mm. You can't just mm. buy the market. Mm-mm. No. No, I, you know, the opportunity, and I mean, I know you've followed Neil Froneman for a long time, but the one that is, that is, I mean, is just capturing this market is palladium. And I'm, I've got to admit, I know absolutely nothing about palladium. I've never watched palladium. I've always watched platinum, but they're different properties, apparently. And, you know, we're now starting to, to, to understand this. They're different properties in Palladium than there are in, uh, in, in platinum. And that's why they're opting to go for palladium converters because apparently they last longer and so on. So you've got a palladium price, Alec, that's, <laughs> that's close to 2,500, which I think 10 years ago was down at 600 or so many years ago. Well, there's always <laughs> a, a discount to platinum. But the real, Apparently. the reason there, Dave, from what I understand, is that palladium is used in petrol. Uh, catalytic yep. converters, whereas mm. platinum is used in diesel mm. catalytic mm. converters, and we know the diesel is way out of fashion. In fact, in the UK, you can hardly sell a diesel car anymore because they're being phased out. And uh, whereas, if you're going to have catalytic converters, well, go with the one that's going to be used. That's there, worse, yeah. Palladium. Mm. Palladium. And listen, we, I, I, I keep saying it and not taking anything away from the people who have invested in platinum shares. And I said, I promise you, when Neil Froneman bought uh, Stillwater uh, in the U.S., I don't think he had any idea that the price was going to go to where it is, you know, because that's a palladium um, the, the producer. Um, and Credit to John uh, Bickard, you know, with his fund, uh, his value fund, having identified platinum shares in parlor when uh, a year ago, I think it was about 200% lower than it is at the moment or uh, significantly below. But, I mean, it's, it's really it's, – it's starting to learn a lot more about it. And what we've been waiting for is the switch. And uh, I'm not sure that that switch is going to take place um, you know that that easily, but that's that's been a big area. We cannot, you know, we cannot ignore what it's going to do for the platinum industry or the platinum producers because we are still by far 
the biggest producer of PGMs, which is the mixture of platinum, palladium, rhodium, whatever else goes into it. It's so interesting to see another South African uh, globalizer in Neil Froneman with Sabanya yeah. Stillwater actually getting it right. But the one that, if you like, uh, blazed the trail for many years has been Richmond. We had yes. good and good yes. solid numbers from Richmond. Not spectacular, but solid that came out mm. on Friday for their third quarter of the yeah. financial year. And yet the share price lifted quite significantly on that. David, what are they telling us? Was, were investors okay. expecting a reverse? I, they were, because the results were moderate and modest. If you look at what they pointed to, first of all, we have good numbers out of China. But what they pointed to is that they were slightly better than the market was expecting. And they underpinned this growing demand for luxury. Uh, and, and it's an area of the market that you cannot dismiss. Um, so if you go to the absolute results, there were concerns about their website. Uh, you know, the new businesses that they've introduced are not doing as well as they expected. We're far below expectations. But when you look at jewelry and, um, you know, those areas, they were very, very strong. And, uh, you know, for that reason, I think the market uh, responded. Um, to be fair, the the sweet spot in luxury is in the what they call soft commodities. That's um, bags and shoes and clothing, you know, which are, which attract um, younger people, um, those who are getting a bit more money or got decent jobs who like to buy a Louis Vuitton bag or whatever other brands. And um, that seems to be where most of the spending is taking place. Alec, it's also taking place in companies like L'Oreal or Estee Lauder Makeup and that. So there's a certain area of the market um, which is doing incredibly well. Um, watches and jewelry that, that Richemont sell are what they call hard luxury, which is at the top end, you know, only for the very wealthy where you can, you only buy one, maybe one or two watches in your lifetime or maybe three. I don't know. Whereas with bags, you're continually rotating them. So different, different spots. Hmm. Uh, just to close off with, I'm not at the World Economic Forum this year. Uh, my colleague Linda van Tilburg's there, but you know, Dave, it's a little bit like Berkshire Hathaway. Mm. The coverage that you get online is so amazing now yeah. that uh, to go all the way to the freezing <laughs> snow and trudge around in that, in that. I did it. I've done it for 17 years in a row. I'm quite happy now to actually look at everything online. <laughs> in the same way as Omaha. Yeah, 26 hours to get to Omaha to go and half half hear what Warren and, and Charlie are saying. Instead, you sit at home. You watch the the thing on uh, online. You've got to believe that. I think, I think one of the benefits or one of the pleasures was you've got to be there once. And I think what I always loved about Omaha is that you, you hang out with people. You know, you see people that you wouldn't see normally. You go, you go sailing down the river drinking a beer or, or eating a whatever food. And, and, and I think it's, it's, it's maybe the, the sense of occasion and just hanging out with people that made it so worthwhile. But admittedly, I think those, that arena, that dark arena, but you were okay. You were privileged. You sat with the press. We had to sit on those. <laughs> we, we even got, we even got fed, David. Would you believe? Yeah, I know. Omaha food, admittedly, (laughs) but still, we got well fed. But but as far as Davos is concerned, uh, you've never been there, have you? No. 
No, I can't afford it. <laughs> oh, yeah, but I think it's similar to what you were saying about Berkshire Hathaway. It's yeah. nice to see the people, and, and I might go next year, but yeah. uh, it's nice to also give other people the, oppor- well, the, the experience. And Linda's yeah. there and uh, on the ground oh, and seeing sure. new things, hopefully not slipping and sliding too much in the snow. Uh, but is it is it really that relevant given that Cyril's not going this year and he's, he's left Tito to wait back? Globally, it's relevant. I don't you know I don't care what people say. We always we always try and beat it up in that. But the fact that people get together there, and I love to listen to the interviews. I've got it in front of me at the moment. Uh, so you're listening to different viewpoints, and uh, you can't ignore the significance of that. So while you, while I don't attend the the presentations, eventually you do get feedback of what they say, and I still think there is a relevance for Davos. David Shapiro is the deputy chairman of Sasson Securities. We're going to be talking to the editor of the Financial Mail, Rob Rose, in just a moment. Well, Rob Rose is well known as the editor of the Financial Mail, but he's also a best-selling author. Uh, his book, Stein Heist, is, uh, has a pride of place in my library, one of, the, one of the better books to come out of South Africa in quite some time. Had, Rob, has the, have the sales reflected all the energy that you put into that book? Hi, Alec. It's great to be on your show. Um, I don't know if book sales ever really do. <laughs> I mean, I think that it's, it's not something I think that people do for money. It's, it's more kind of probably because you think that there's a story that must be told, I think. Yeah, and how, um, what, what a story this one was. But I guess the, the point of this discussion is really to go forward to uh, the PwC report, which we heard about when the whole thing exploded, when the whole of Steinhoff kind of imploded in December 2017. They appointed PwC to investigate. How many people were on the job, Rob? Do you know? PwC, I think they had a they had a massive team, um, more than a hundred people, from what I what I heard. They, PwC were a little reluctant to to confirm the exact details, um, but yeah, there was a there was a massive team on it, and I think they they amassed something like thirteen thousand pages of, of documents, um, which was massive if you include the annexures. And what did we only saw eleven pages of those? <laughs> yeah, we saw all of eleven pages. Um, and that, that I think was the issue. I mean, those 11 pages from what we saw was, was pretty damning. As you know, it, it talked of how there was 106 billion rand of fictitious and irregular transactions over the course of a decade. Um, which is a sort of an eye grabbing, eye grabbing number. Um, but it, it doesn't reveal much of the detail underneath it. I mean, how did that happen? Who knew about this? That sort of thing. To what extent were individuals culpable? Um, and, and I suppose those are the details that, that you'd want to find out that you as an investor or a member of the public, considering how many pension funds had, had invested in Stanoff, would, would, would feel like you have a right to know for the country's largest investment fraud. Now, the argument, or the Steinhoff board's argument, was that they've got a whole lot of legal issues that are going on and they don't want to show their hand. You don't buy that? No. I mean, well, like I said, I think that I think the argument is that is that you have a public where that has been affected by this quite badly, not just the pension funds, but I suppose the Steinoff scandal and things that went on around it affected investment in this country. It affected perceptions of of the country's um, corporate sector. It had a far greater impact than just Steinoff investors. So Steinoff saying that they want to keep the report close to their chest so that they can pursue individual legal claims. 
um, I think there's a far broader argument to make that I, I don't think that they, that they recognize at all. Now, you didn't take long to put that argument into the courts. Uh, the report came out in March. Also in March, you uh, attacked Steinhoff uh, through the access to information um, legislation in South Africa. Weber Wenzel busy putting that together. How has that action uh, progressed? So what happened is they first refused us access to the, the to the full report. We mounted these arguments. We described the public the public interest aspect of it, which we felt was was valid. Um, at the same time, Amabungani, uh, Centre for Investigative Journalism, um, which is quite well known, it's the, it's the unit that got the Gupta leaks and and they have a proud record of investigative journalism in the country. They also lodged a prior request. So we we combined our 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 requests, and, and we're now proceeding against Sanoff. They have now argued against us, saying that essentially we just want this information so that we can make salacious articles out of it. I mean, it's essentially the essence of what they're saying. Um, and they said that they want to use this to proceed, like you said, against individuals to recover money. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think that that's, that's an argument that will go to court because we feel like we have a strong public interest case to be made. What's the process now? When will that be heard? Um, that has to be set down, I think. I mean, we've we filed our, our, our final our reply to them now, um, as of last week, I think, or this coming week. Um, and then we'll, you know, our, our lawyers will decide when or how to proceed to to the courts. But I think that at this point, it looks like it's heading it's heading to the courts. And it'll, I mean, Alec. I think it's it's going to have a wider resonance in the country because you've seen a lot of companies like EOH, like Sassel, um, like Tongart do exactly the same thing, you know, have these massive forensic investigations and then release these these incredibly abbreviated reports that don't tell anyone much. So I think it's it's a it's a case that that'll have far wider ramifications should we win for how companies will proceed when they have these sort of scandals. Mm. You wrote about this in the FM this week, but the other piece in the FM that, that really grabbed my attention, because there hasn't been that much focused on it, is this fellow Martin Levick from Genesis Capital. Who yeah. Tell us that story. <laughs> I think it's a fascinating story. I mean, this guy Martin Levick, he founded this company, Genesis Capital, and he was instrumental in, in the private equity arm, which I think is, has since um, been stripped out and renamed as Calculus, and I think it now has Larry Lipschitz, the former Supergroup CEO, running it. Um, but essentially, he, he, he was a guy with a long-standing reputation and became very close to a number of people, including the bright founder, Anthony Ball. Um, but he just convinced people to put in a lot of money f- into what was blatant scams, uh, allegedly, I should say, because <laughs> at this point nothing's been proven in court. Um, but for example, he told Anthony Ball that, that he was going to buy this Banksy um, painting. And Banksy is a street street artist from London who's, who's done particularly well, um, and that and that Anthony Ball would essentially be investing in this in this painting, but actually he never had the right to it. It was just just a just a fabrication, um, and he extracted lots of money. I mean, the the figures were, you know, were were pretty alarming in terms of how much he's extracted from various people right across the board, including including African Merchant Bank, um, which was a big deal if you remember AMB in the early 2000s. Um, and it's just, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing the impunity with which some people act in this country. Um, 700 million, Rob? 
700 million. That's an a lot of money. extraordinary number. What does Ant- <laughs> Anthony Ball say about this? Because he's, he's a shrewd operator. For him to get hooked is, uh, by anybody, I, I think, uh, especially somebody else who comes from his industry, is a bit of a surprise. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Anthony Ball felt, he, you know, he, he discussed it in length with me last year, and he said he felt that it was, you know, he trusted this guy implicitly. Um and and he's the kind of guy who, you know, he used to throw around the names like Adrian Gore was here, Ian Kirk was here, I know these guys, I'm a big deal. And I think a lot of people were persuaded by that. Um, he would describe how, you know, Natie Kirsch was a close personal friend. Um, and it was by using Natie Kirsch's name that he got Anthony Ball to, to invest in their painting. But, you know, Anthony, Anthony I, f- I felt it's difficult when you're somebody who gets beguiled by people like this. I think you feel a degree of embarrassment um and shame and it's 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 a complicated thing because you you know you have to trust people in 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 business i suppose um it's a trust but verify thing but i suppose a lot of people got got caught by this it was the same deal with other people you know the said barry tannenbaum mm. um, which you also wrote a book about yeah yeah so so he had he had guys like sean summers who was the ceo of pick and pay had Norman and Howard Lowenthal, and I think Norman was the chair of the JSC at one stage. He had some some investors who you'd think, well, these are smart businessmen, you know, they should they should know better. Um, but they put lots of money into these things that were essentially scams, and and then these guys just walk off into the wind. I mean, you look at Tannenbaum; he's in Australia. He was driving a he was driving a an Uber last I heard. Um, but not so, in jail. Mm. Not in jail. And I, so you wonder why Levick is ever going to if he's ever going to go to jail. And he's uh, presumably not behind bars, given that comment. Let no, <laughs> no, he's not. He's running around from what I've heard from various people who've spoken to him. He's basically telling people how this was just an effort, to, you know, a conspiracy to make him look bad. Um, and it's just part of some that there's, there's this greater untold story in his conspiracy theory. Uh, he hinted that to me, Martin Levick, when I spoke to him last year, but he wouldn't say what this conspiracy was. <laughs> Rob Rose is the editor of the Financial Mail and the author of Steinheist and uh, the book on Barry Tannenbaum, both of which are make for a compelling reading. We're going to find out in a moment from Paul O'Sullivan why people like Marcus Eurster and Martin Levick aren't behind bars. Well, as promised, Paul O'Sullivan is with us on the line now. Paul, I've just had a really good chat with the editor of the Financial Mail, Rob Rose, who's, who's done a lot of work on crooks. Uh, and most, <laughs> as, we, as we well know, well, so have you. But Steinheist, yeah. uh, I don't know if you got to read that book, but it, it really unpacked the Yurster story incredibly well. And in the latest edition, he, un- he well unveils, uh, exposes a guy called Martin Levick, who took... People in Johannesburg, including Anthony Ball, who's a founder of Breit, uh, the, the investment bank, private equity company, for 700 million rand. I mean, those, you know, that's, that's, that's really big numbers. And yet, as Rob says, he's walking around telling people his own version of the truth, as is yours. So how come these guys can do this? How come they don't get put behind bars? Well, what you have to remember, Alec, um, <laughs> First of all, the criminal justice system has been captured since at least 10 years ago. So you have criminals running the criminal justice system. Now, in the last year or so, that grip 
on the criminal justice system has started to be lifted. But it's not going to be fixed in five minutes. In fact, I think I did the exercise a couple of weeks ago that if you had a professional team of prosecutors, and I'm talking about um, 10 teams, so 10 teams of, of prosecutors, and the, the teams would be a senior counsel and a junior counsel. And if you had these 10 teams together and you prosecuted everybody that was involved in, in state capture, that 10 teams is going to be busy for the next 30 years. Whoa. Yeah. That's now, a bit sobering. Well, the scale of the problem really is that the, everywhere you look, I mean, uh, <clears throat> this morning I was reading something on Business Insider about, um, you know, the validity of my lifetime platinum status at Voyager. Mm. And it dawned on me that it was six years ago that I wrote to Duda Myeni and told her that as a lifetime platinum member, I wasn't really keen on the way she was running the airline into the ground. Six years later, she still hasn't been criminally charged. And I, I, I want to remind that in 2015, in March 2015, I opened a criminal docket against her. Five years later, nothing has happened. So you have this enormous, shall I say, mountain to climb. And we don't really have enough mountaineers and ropes and tackle and so off to get on with the job. So Levick so and Euster uh, would be sitting back thinking, well, come and fetch me, because the chances are the criminal justice system, from the way you've explained it, is broken. I can get away with it. I think that that's the case with a lot of these issues. I mean, we opened a case against Lucky Montana five years ago. Nothing. We opened cases against people like Jiba, Mawebi, Munu, and other uh, people in, in, in the police and the criminal justice system, which we were believed uh, were involved in serious criminal activity, nothing has happened to any of them. And then when I look at <clears throat> some of the cases um, that have come forward for prosecution, they're coming forward three or four years after the event. Now, as an example, Trindadi was arrested in December his next appearance in court is May next, uh, May this year. So what happens in six months? Nothing. You know, the wheel grinds to halt. I mean, to be frank with you, the justice system is loaded in favor of those that commit massive crime, white, white collar crime. Now, if I tell you the scale of white collar crime in this country exceeds all of the other crimes by in other words, the white-collar crime represents 90% of all the crime that's taking place in South Africa in rand value. And yet the resources being applied to deal with that 90% of the crime that's taking place is less than 10% of the resources that are available in the police service. So you've got this complete upset in terms of the real figures. What do other now, countries do, Paul? Because clearly uh, this must be a situation other countries do is, you know, they, they deal effectively with white-collar crime before it gets out of hand. Now, it's got out of hand in South Africa. And to give you a classic example, a poor person, and I'm talking about somebody living in poverty, can go into checkers or pick and pay and steal a loaf of bread and get caught, being, be arrested immediately, being caught the next day, have the matter postponed for a month, 
and a month later have a trial and be found guilty and sentenced. And that all happens within a matter of weeks. Mm. Now, so if you can steal a loaf of bread and get instant justice, how is it that you can steal 100 million and not get any justice? And that is the challenge we face in South Africa. And the problem is, until it's dealt with, I'm afraid the economy of this country is going in one direction. I mean, if you, if you list all the companies that are now suffering and teetering on the brink of bankruptcy, state-owned companies, Nokal, then you really are looking at the scale of the problem. SAA, ESCOM, um, the arms company, what do they call it, Denal, mm. you know, um, every single st- uh, Transnet, Praza, every Every single state-owned company is now running at a loss. But, but just to just to go back to your um, bread loaf stealing uh, example, why can that person? Why is that person having to sit in jail for um, for a, a month? And the white-collar criminals, who it's been very well uh, exposed already in the media and everywhere else, and take Steinhoff as an example are still living in the lap of luxury wherever they might be. Well, Surely the of, question is the, is, yeah, is, is the legal part, resources. Yeah, part of the problem also is that you get bail in South Africa. You get bail even if you've murdered somebody. And there's very few countries in the world where you can, you can be accused of murder and there'd be a fairly strong case against you and you, you can apply for and in most cases get bail immediately. Now, the reason for that, And when we come to the big fraud cases, you have this situation. A lot of the frauds I investigate, the people that I'm onto, they know. They know that I'm onto them. And what do they do? They put up red herrings. They put up defenses. And some of their defensive strategies include hiring lawyers, expensive lawyers at that, to bring fake claims against me that I'm harassing them. Trindadi is a classic example. It was a year ago that I told him to pay back the money. And within three or four months, when he ignored me, and I ramped up the, um, to use his words, harassment, um, he then runs off to court and launches a, um, uh, harass, anti-harassment order application against me. And he hires top lawyers at 50,000 plus a day. And I have to deal with that. I have to fight back. So I end up spending my own money dealing with, with these criminals. Of course, it didn't help him. He's been arrested and he's been charged. But the acid test will be when he gets sent to prison. Now, when you've got lawyers who are happy to live off the proceeds of crime, and there's no shortage of those in South Africa, when you've got lawyers that do that, they are being pitched up against um, not necessarily the best paid lawyers working for the state. Mm. And then you've got to remember that on average, a um, state advocate who's prosecuting in, in white collar crime, those advocates, not only are they not the best paid advocates in town, but they also have a massive workload and they don't get to cherry pick the cases that they're going to work on. These cases are thrown at them and they're overwhelmed. They, it's impossible. So what they do is they pick the cases where they think they can make a difference. And then if you've got a case, 
where a person's stolen a couple of hundred million and he muddies the water so much that the state prosecutor is running around in circles, that state prosecutor in many cases would say, oh, this is too much trouble. I'll rather focus on the ones where the, the accused are not putting up such a fight. Paul, I understand, that's, that's what I understand that, but surely in South Africa there are many people who are socially minded and there have got to be some pretty good lawyers who are in that group as well. Isn't there a case to be made for maybe bringing some of them in for national service, even if it is in a, in a short period, to help out? To, we've gone through a terrible uh, 10 wasted years to, to help out in putting these people behind bars. Is there any political well, will to do you, that? Then you're left wondering, you know, the criminal underworld out there is like a big network. So they all know each other. All these criminals in the white wallet crime world, in the white collar crime world, they all know each other. They're all using the same pool of attorneys and advocates. So now what you're asking, you are now suggesting, is that we get these hounds to run with the foxes and hunt with the hounds. Got it. Yeah. Now, a conflict of interest. And you see the conflict immediately when you see some of these criminal lawyers being appointed acting judges. And I'm left wondering who in their right mind would appoint a criminal lawyer, an acting judge, where there's a great possibility that he's going to see his client sitting in front of him. If not his client, he's going to see lawyers that have instructed him in the past standing standing there in front of him. So what's the solution? So, or what's a I think this, the solution is to... Go for the low-hanging fruit. Now, in my opinion, and I take, um, you, you know, we'll use the ESCOM slash Trindadi case as an example. We can show beyond doubt that 60 million plus miners was paid to ESCOM employees. Now, some of that payments were made through a process of money laundering. That's a very serious criminal offence. Corruption is a very serious criminal offence. Instead of charging him with every single payment that he made and every single money laundering act that he committed, just select one or two simple squeaky clean charges that he can't wriggle out of. The trial will last six or ten hours in court and he can get sentenced. He might not get life in jail, but he might get 10 or 15 or 20 years in jail. And justice has been served because he's out of the system. And if they do that, instead of having trials that drag on for years, I look at Jackie Celebi. That trial lasted two and a half years. Mm. I, I had a case in, in 1994 when I was a police officer working in the fraud department at the then Johannesburg Central or John Forster Square. I arrested a guy called Andre Boer. It took me three months to write the charge sheet. His trial lasted three years. And after he was convicted and sent to prison, myself and the prosecutor were having lunch uh, together with the, the, the regional court magistrate that sent him down. Um, and the magistrate, as I was having my pudding, and I nearly choked on it, said, of course, if you'd have charged him with 10 charges, he would have still got 15 years. And I charged that guy with 1,800 charges. Mm -hmm. I learned from yeah. that. Yeah. And now when I open criminal dockets, I don't throw the book at them. I select clean charges and say, charge them with that. Now, the state have got to start doing the same. They've got to go for the jugular.
Good practical advice from Paul O'Sullivan. Uh, we're going to be talking with Kevin Shames in just a moment. Thanks to Paul, as always, for giving us the insights into some of these dilemmas that, well, if, you are, if you're outside of the loop, are very hard to understand. This interview is brought to you by Bright Light Solar, whose Chief Executive, Kevin Shames, joins us. Now, Kevin, we've been talking uh, over the past few weeks about uh, the opportunity of uh, a fund, 12J funds, and uh, the tax incentives and the benefits that are available. But you brought your prospectus out just after our, our discussion last week. And what has the reaction been to the, those hundreds of people in the business community who've actually wanted to get a slice of this 20% plus uh, after-tax uh, return that you're offering? Thanks, Alec. Uh, well, the the response has been fantastic. Uh, we have sent the prospectus out to every investor that inquired um, as a result of these uh, the, the the discussions that we've been having. Um, some incredibly thorough reviews. I, I had a meeting last week with a man who went through all 170 odd pages of it um, and asked me some brilliant questions, uh, which we really enjoy. And um, now, you know, now we've really just got to make sure that people understand what the offering entails and obviously the legal agreement that backs it up. So the, the return is generated because of tax incentives uh, that the government is offering. Partly, so so an investor, it's made up of uh, three components. The first one is the upfront tax incentive, which is the Section 12J incentive. The second one is we pay semi-annual dividends from the very first year. So someone that invests now in February 2020 will start getting their first dividend uh, for the period ended August 2020 and every six months thereafter. And then the final component is if an investor wishes to sell, we will then make liquidity available to them from the beginning of year six. And those three components then combine to provide an investor an IRR of 21% after tax. So you say year six. So that's the minimum that you can be invested for. So it's not a, it's not a quick way to, to organize to pay lower taxes. But how long can you keep the investment in for? What's the maximum? So, so that, that, that's a really important point. And the, uh, the term of the underlying power purchase agreements are as long as 25 years. And so we recommend to investors that you should look at this as a 25-year investment. And the beauty of it is it's a highly predictable future cash flow. So it's great for estates uh, or, or uh, investment planning purposes because you know you are going to get a cash payment every six months. And we can forecast that with a reasonable degree of accuracy because it is contractual. We know pretty much how much sunlight uh, we get in, 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 a, in a year. And uh, the tariff is based, uh, you know, that really is the only unknown is what the future NERSA increases are going to be because our power purchase agreements are linked to NERSA escalations. So just unpack that a, a little more, if you would. Um, how can you be so confident? Who, who do you sign these agreements with? So we sign the agreement with customers. The, the customers typically are either the trustees of a sectional title body corporate, uh, also with commercial, industrial, and agricultural 
um, uh, customers, and and that is a contract that binds them to buy the power from us over a long-term period. And and that term is typically negotiated between the parties, and it, it really depends on what the customer wants to achieve. If If they want to achieve the quickest uh, form of ownership, the shortest period, then there'll be a higher initial tariff and potentially a higher escalation. If they want the lowest cost of electricity, then what we do is we push the term of the contract out to as long as 25 years, and that gives them the lowest cost of electricity, once again, without any capital outlay from their part at all. Because you put in the, the, the solar panels. Correct. So, so the capital that we are raising from investors that are investing now, we use that capital to install the solar installation, uh, and that then is used to sell the electricity to the customer over the long term. Kevin, just from an outsider's point of view, if you look at the power problem South Africa has, it's surprising, and the, and the fantastic return that can be achieved because government has come to the party here on, on these 12J uh, schemes. It's surprising to me that you, you, you don't have many other companies like yourselves doing exactly this. There are some other Section 12J companies that are involved in the renewable energy space. Uh, I think what is interesting is the limited opportunities that investors have outside of the 12J space to invest in these renewable energy type of projects. There, for example, isn't anything listed on the JSE where you can go and buy uh, a, a an investment that provides you access to these cash flows from long-term power purchase agreements, which are wonderful assets for any investor, whether you're an individual or an institutional investor, because it gives you great predictability of what your future cash flows are going to be. Mm, and, and these returns are, are very high. People are quite happy often to go into a utility that gives them 5 or 6% as long as it's guaranteed. But there is another, uh, another string to your bow, uh, and that's solar thermal or replacing geysers, I guess, with, with solar. Is that a completely different area? So to date, Alec, what we have done, uh, the capital that we raised in 2018 and 2019, our mandate restricted us to exclusively solar PV installation. In other words, putting up solar photovoltaic plates that generate uh, electricity from, from the sun. The opportunity um, has now arisen that we can use alternative forms of renewable energy to broaden our mandates. And what we are doing from the C tranche, which is the, the tranche that we're currently raising capital for, is to go into two new areas. Uh, the first one is solar thermal, which is using heat from the sun to generate hot water. Uh, and the beauty of that is if you think of solar PV, uh, it's, it's a use it or lose it situation if you don't have batteries. In other words, if you generate electricity and that electricity isn't used, you lose it. But the beauty of solar thermal is that it comes with a built-in battery, and that battery is water. Because what you're doing is you're storing that energy in water for use when you come home and have a shower at night. Now, when you look at the domestic use of electricity, between 40 and 60% of electricity usage is for heating water. So we can make the electricity consumption far more efficient by using the heat from, from the sun to store this heat in water uh, very efficiently. 
and be able to provide a hot water solution to our customers now, uh, once again on the same basis, for no upfront capital cost. Uh, we then supply, insure, and maintain that over the long term, and we can then sell them uh, hot water at a price substantially lower than they would have been paying uh, to their local utilities to heat their water themselves. And so you do this uh, this deal in the same way as you're doing the uh, the solar panels uh, with the body corporates of a of a uh, of an estate. Exactly. And then the next thing that we're doing is we are bringing atmospheric water generation to these customers as well. And what that is, it is extracting uh, potable filtered drinking water from the water vapor in the air through technology that allows us to capture this water and deliver filtered drinking water to our customers, which is a totally off-the-grid solution. And that will be available later in the year. We're estimating that will probably be available in in, in six to eight months' time. Kevin James is the CEO of Bright Light Solar. And this special report was brought to you by Bright Light Solar. We're going to be talking in just a moment to a, a threat, a major threat to South Africa's exports to the United States. 34 billion rand a year that goes through our membership of AGOA. And this is to do with something that you and I use every day. We'll be chatting with Colin Lamini. Stay with us. Well, as promised, Colin Lamini joins us now. Colin, uh, you're the spokesperson for the Copyright Coalition. It's quite a, quite a mouthful. What exactly is the organisation? Uh, thank you, Alec, for having me on your show. Um, so I represent the Copyright Coalition of South Africa, which is a, a broad-based um, organization that represents uh, creators of content and owners of copyright, comprised mainly of practitioners in the, create, in the creative economy, such as the Publishers Association of South Africa, the Film Industry of SA, the Visual Arts Network of South Africa, the Animation South Africa, uh, the Music Publishers, the Recording Industries, and the Trade Union of Musicians. So in total, we have currently about 15 of these trade associations that have come together to engage government constructively about um, the threat of this bill and how we can ensure that we have uh, legislation that is fit for purpose. Now, it was extraordinary when I was reading through the documentation that you've been issuing to the public that AGOA, which we all know from the business sector, is terribly important. It's, the, it's something that uh, George W. Bush brought, introduced in May 2000 to allow duty-free access into the United States by sub-Saharan African countries. And we are one of them, one of the beneficiaries. There are a few on the continent that aren't beneficiaries, like Zimbabwe, Equatorial Guinea, DRC, uh, Central African Republic, Sudan, Somalia, and so on. But most most reputable com- uh, countries are a part of this benefit, enjoy this benefit. You say that South Africa exports 34 billion rand a year into the United States by using AGOA, but that this bill, which has now already been passed by Parliament, it just needs Ramaphosa to, to sign it into law, this bill threatens South Africa's um, ownership or participation in AGOA. How so, Colin? 
Um, so yes, uh, that's true. We 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 are a participant in the. So this one is called the generalized system of preferences, um, which is very a very similar um, program as such a, as Agoa, where we are allowed, where South Africa is allowed to export um, all sorts of uh, products and services to the U.S. Uh, duty-free. So we have preferential access to the U.S. markets, and we are one of the oldest participants in this program in, in Africa. And now it's challenged due to a complaint that was laid, uh, that was lodged by the International Intellectual Property Association, which represents a number of uh, American companies that also participate in the creative economy in the U.S., but also have a lot of uh, content that is created and marketed and produced in South Africa. So with the new copyright bill legislation that is um, that has been on the president's desk for the past 10 months, the bill, the, the, the members of the intellectual, International Intellectual Property Association have seen that the bill has now uh, provisions which will significantly water down copyright protection measures. And for them, this is a big risk because uh, they, they do a lot of work in South Africa, um, such as a lot of Hollywood film uh, producers and music recording companies and publishers, etc., etc. So they realize that with uh, provisions such as the fair use clause, which uh, we have in this bill, um, it will uh, pose a huge threat to their businesses because if you don't have um, uh, sufficient uh, protections for IP, for intellectual property, then you might as well just uh, close shop and exit. But they don't want to uh, exit uh, South Africa as a market with, in terms of the investments that they plow in the country. They just want our government to recognize that this bill is flawed and should rectify it. So we still have a chance to do that if the president send, can send it back to parliament. And that's what we also calling for as uh, local creators of content and um, creative creatives who are active participants in the creative economy. Okay, so I understand a little bit better now that we are signatories to a, uh, a duty-free access into the United States. It's not a goer. It's, it's something different but affects creatives in a big way. And there is a, 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 a bill that went through Parliament that is not aligned with, with international uh, regulations? Yes, yes. So the the bill is not uh, suf- sufficiently will not suffi- is not sufficiently compliant with our international treaty obligations. So um, in the world of copyright, there are a certain number of international treaties that South Africa is a signatory to, and with this current bill, um, upon seeking legal advice from top international experts, the, the U.S. companies, including our local companies, have found that the bill will not uh, meet these international treaty obligations, and it, is, it, had, it has now been found to be unconstitutional, which is uh, a big issue because should the president sign it and then it is, take, it is challenged in the constitutional court, 
it will take years and years um, to try to get to an, a, a workable solution for the country. Colin, what happens if uh, President Ramaphosa does sign it into law? So if he signs it, the chances are the the U.S. government will will remove us from uh, the generalized system of preferences program, and we will lose potentially over 34 billion rand. And this 34 billion rand, by the way, is an amount that was quantified based on last year's exports to the U.S. using this generalized system of preferences program. And that is just the tip of the iceberg, Alec, because we have all, and that's just going to impact on exports. But there's also a far bigger risk on the jobs that we are going to lose in South Africa, because we also have um, conducted through the Publishers Association of South Africa, a PwC socio-economic impact study report, where PwC has found that. 1,250 jobs will be lost immediately in the short term if this bill is signed. And that is just in the publishing sector. Yet alone, we haven't even scratched the surface to see how is this bill going to impact on the film industry, which is currently growing at a significant pace. Um, How is it going to affect uh, the music industry, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, it is going to be a big problem for the country. We're going to lose a lot of investments, foreign investments, and we're going to lose a lot of jobs, and we're going to lose a lot of um, uh, 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 preferential uh, trade uh, from the U.S. So in your, um, in your assessment, what needs to be done? How big a change is required to the bill that went through Parliament? So, I wish I could tell you that uh, the bill just needs to be tweaked here and there and then it can be just sent to the President to sign. But unfortunately, the bill is fundamentally flawed because a lot has gone wrong from how it was conceptualized from the beginning and also the processes in which it was followed in Parliament. We, do, we didn't do our homework properly. Um, and what I mean by that is that um, all legislation that is done in Parliament uh, has to go through a rigorous process of uh, evidence-based research by conducting a socioeconomic impact study report, which looks into how will uh, legislation impact on communities, um, various sectors of society, um, the, the various um, sectors of the economy, and, and so forth. So that was not done, and that needs to be done if we are going, if, if, if we go, um, uh, if the president refers the bill back to parliament. So it's back to um, the drawing board, Colin, in other words. So there, it, there it, aren't it, any tweaks. It has to go back mm. to the drawing board. It is so fundamentally flawed. And, and what's even, comp- what even further complicates the matter is that they combined the, they, they jo- sort of joined the copyright amendment bill with the performance protection bill. So the president cannot sign the one bill without the other. And actors have been complaining that They've been waiting for, their, for the reforms in the, 
in the acting and screen performing um, sector for such a long time. And for them, they are actually held hostage now by this copyright amendment bill, which is so fundamentally flawed, which means both bills will need to be sent back um, for for further rework. And we, we also have noticed that um, because of the constitutional defects of the bill, it will actually need to now go through the right processes through Parliament because how it was tagged in Parliament, it was incorrectly tagged, which means it now needs to go back for further consultations, even in the provinces, not only through the National Assembly. Colin Lamini is the spokesperson for the Copyright Coalition, a very serious issue that, uh, that he's raised there. I've been receiving mails from, uh, from the Copyright Co- Coalition for a while, and I, th- I started reading them more carefully, and it does look like there's something pretty fundamentally wrong here. Um, they say that laws are uh, one of those things that you don't really like to see being made, but sometimes when they are rushed through, as seems to have been the case here, uh, they can have significant impacts. We're bringing Nick Bernadel in now. This is with our new uh, feature that I'm going to uh, be running in Rational Radio every week from here onwards. Uh, I spoke to Nick uh, to ask him what he's been reading and indeed what he's read recently that he would recommend to us. Well, I couldn't think of anyone better than my good friend, the former dean of uh, Gibbs, uh, to kick off this new feature where we're going to be looking at books that uh, we can recommend to you. Because I know Nick to be a voracious reader. Uh, He reads a lot of history, but lots of other things as well. But Nick uh, Bernadel, lovely to have you with us here for this new feature of ours. Thanks, Alec. Great to be on the program. So what are you reading right now? Uh, Alec, I'm just in the last stages of reading a fantastic book. I don't know if you ever read uh, Osamoglu and Robinson, Why Nations Fail. It's about five or seven years ago it came out, doing a study, a global view. And they've written a fascinating new book that I've spent a lot of time reading in the break called The Narrow Corridor. Um, And it's a a take at essentially how societies organize their politics and economics and the key thing they're looking at is what is the power of the state and, and what is the power of society. And what they're arguing is you have to find the balance between the two. And if you get too much of one or too much of the other, you're not going to prosper or do well. And it's a fascinating look at many, many societies, including South Africa, actually, um, looking at the varieties and the successes and the failures. How deep are you into this book? I'm, I'm, I'm going to reread it. Uh, I've almost finished. Uh, well, actually, I have finished now. And uh, uh, basically exploring all of these kinds of ideas about the origins of the state and the nature of civil society. And uh, so, you know, what they posit is, is what they call the shackled Leviathan, that the state must be controlled ultimately and society must have uh, a role in shaping the state. And if it goes too far one way or the other, they say you step out of the narrow corridor and the width of your corridor depends on your history and the resources and skills you have. I'm very pleased to hear that you are rereading the book because that's, that's a sign of a, of a great um, tome uh, in Nassim mm. Taleb's uh, books that he uh, often when he, when he writes about the habits of reading. He says that it's right. not how many you sell, 
it's how many times people reread your book. So, <laughs> Clint, right. That uh, may be just I'm a slow learner, so don't get that. Uh, mm, oh, yes. Uh, Nick, you mentioned that they did talk about South Africa. In yeah. What were their conclusions? Well, no, they're not trying to be predictive. I think they're more trying to give you, which is what I needed in the break. So I spent a lot of the break. I was in Egypt for a long time studying the Middle East, which I know quite well, and getting out of South Africa just to try and reshape my perspective of, of where we are. And so I'm interested in this sort of comparative analysis of what I call big emerging markets, so Egypt, Iran, Turkey, Malaysia, etc., and their sort of political, cultural, social, and business dynamics. So they don't try and come to a conclusion. They're more trying to frame the debates to help us kind of step back a little bit from the window and take a, take a slightly deeper look. They talk about South Africa in its democratic transition, but fascinating, they also talk about uh, the rise of the Zulu nation. They have a chapter called The, the Will to Power, that when do societies give uh, leaders or when do leaders create uh, leadership, real leadership, strategic leadership? And this chapter then talks about the rise of the Zulu nation. Hmm. Okay, so that's one for the book list for us to get off to exclusives or wherever. Actually, Amazon.com, I suppose, is easier to, to in, secure. In fact, to my surprise, uh, it, it is an exclusive. As well. Well, that's good news. Yeah. Well, well done so to the guys. Can pick it up. Mm. Uh, what have you recently read that sticks with you? So because I went to Egypt, I read two or three books uh, on Egyptian history, but also contemporary Egyptian politics. And the one I found most interesting, again, relevant to us, was Egypt and the contradictions of liberalism. Because, you know, Egypt's largely be run by the military or kings and pharaohs. But uh, they had this brief experiment to, uh, with the Muslim Brotherhood, which totally failed. And so it is the nature of these authoritarian states. So that was a really interesting book. And then I've just uh, reread... <laughs> The uh, the Alchemist by by Paul Cahier, oh, go on. philosopher, and I just love rereading that again. Isn't he uh, marvelous? I, I, yeah, yeah and, and his story of the young boy walking through the palace. Uh, you probably know the story. He gives him uh, a spoon uh, with some syrup in it and says, walk around, around my palace and come back to me. And, of course, the boy takes care of the syrup so much he never looks at what's around him. And then he explains life's about preserving what you've got, but also learning what's you. It's a beautiful little book. Uh, and then I've just finished uh, today uh, a new book that's come out that I, in a way, have been waiting for. It's called Voices from the Underground. 18 stories from the M.K. Ashley Creel detachment in Cape Town. And they're 18 biographies written now about people who were in that unit and, and why they did what they did. And uh, the, their extraordinary story of struggle and courage, which I found really, really interesting. So you've given us a bonus there, Nick. We only, we're only hoping to, to hear of one good book. The Alchemist, <laughs> I guess, is a, is a classic. Many people know about that that yes. one and uh, if they haven't if you haven't read it yet it's well worth getting yes. hold of uh, but the the last of the three that you spoke about the yeah. uh, the 18 stories from the underground yes. who were the people featured well uh, Shirley Gunn was one of the key I've never met her I've heard of her uh, she was the leader of the detachment and a whole list of, of, as I say, 18 people, including her husband, Anis Sali, who I've also never met, Shanil Haricharan, um, who I'm going to reach out to because he sounds like a fascinating guy. Just a variety of people who were very young at the time, were prepared to put their lives on the line 
And of course, we, I suppose people have different views about this, but they went overseas for training, came back and conducted 30 operations in the Cape, uh, expressly avoiding any loss of life, although one person was injured by a bomb. But it was more the nitty gritty of, of their story. You know, we always talk about the, the big the big leaders and I, I've always wanted to read uh, exile stories and, and these particular stories of people who stayed here. Another a wonderful book uh, I also read in the break, if I can give you another bonus, is uh, David Hoffman, The Dead Hand. And it's a story of the Cold War, which is absolutely remarkable, mainly about Russia under Gorbachev and how close we were to a major calamity. So I'd also recommend that for those who have the time. How much time do you spend reading, Nick? You know, I'm like most people, Alec. I read when I, when I travel, especially when I fly. And, of course, the holidays are a great time to catch up. And I had a pretty long holiday uh, this year. And so I read a lot about the Middle East. But I would say, look, it's partly my job as a professor, but I would say I spend at least maybe half a day a week reading bro as broadly as I can, mainly because the canvas we're living through, the, the portrait we, we, we're engaging with is so complex and moving so quickly. And also we get very absorbed in our own story, the South African story. And I like to be able to compare. In fact, I've been thinking, do I learn more from travel or from reading? Uh, and, of course, the reading gives you some sanity because you can start to compare other places. But equally, I love the travel, as you know, because nothing like walking the streets of Cairo, a city of 12 million people, and finding how they get by in a chaotic but orderly fashion, much like India. To the Western mind, you might say it's chaos. To my mind, it looks pretty organized and everybody knows their place. So the combination of travel and reading for me are extremely helpful. Mm. And Egypt has now surpassed South Africa as the second largest economy on the continent. So I suppose there's much we can learn from them too. It has, you know, and it's a very resilient society. Everybody knows their place. So I'll give you an example. I was staying in Zamalek, which is a little island uh, right in the center of uh, Cairo. And a lot of foreign people stay there, emb embassies are there. And the guy who collects the garbage from uh, from uh, the various buildings around the little hotel I was staying uh, is not paid by the government. He collects all the garbage, he processes it, he gets paid for it, and he makes a middle-class living from doing it, which is quite remarkable. Everyone knows their place in Egypt. It's a bit like India in that sense, a highly layered society where people have to cooperate to get by. Whereas often think of South Africa as we haven't worked out the social capital that we so desperately need of trust and respect and, and tolerating people and being more inclusive. And so that helped me a great deal being there for a couple of weeks. Nick Benadel, the founder of Gibbs, and uh, he still lectures often and, as you hear, reads a lot and travels a great deal, giving us a whole host of books there that are worth putting onto the bookshelf. And with Nick uh, kicking off this new series on reading and books, we're going to be looking for more ideas. So if you've got some suggestions, just pop me a me an email, alec at biznews.com. But right now, uh, this special podcast is brought to you by One Touch Property Investment, whose chief investment officer, or investment director rather, Aaron Kirkfleet, joins us now from London. Aaron, lovely to have you on the program. Uh, I've been seeing some of your research recently uh, about investing in rental properties in South Africa versus the UK. But before we get into that, and there's some quite surprising results that you've come to, are you popping out to sunny South Africa soon? 
Yes, indeed, Alec. Thanks for having me on. And we're going to be out there between the 3rd and the 14th of February. So popping down to Cape Town, Durban and Johannesburg. Is there still a lot of interest when you come here from potential clients? Yeah, significant interest. I mean, a lot of people um, over the last three years had already invested. Um, there was a bit of um, romophoria last year in um, sort of May time. But um, as the power cuts and everything sort of set in, you know, people decided, well, it isn't going to be as rosy as they thought, and they continued to invest elsewhere, certainly in the UK. Let's talk about that rental income because this isn't a market that you know very well. People can hear from your accent that you are South African uh, living in, in the UK and you've been there for a long time. But the the immediate assumption would be in a developing country like South Africa, you'd get a far better return on investment if you buy a rental property than you would in the UK. But from the numbers you've done, this doesn't uh, this is actually not the case. Yeah, sure. And that's correct. I mean, look, just to be, put things out there, I mean, I had to um, look at, have some sort of rationale or some sort of basis to compare the properties. And it's not to say that you could go and invest in a suburb that you're very comfortable with, you know, outside of Johannesburg and maybe get higher yields. But um, that's a similar sort of scenario over here where you could go and invest in Halifax or one of the smaller cities and maybe get even a higher yield. But if I looked at a comparing um, areas like Paul's up in Santon with the suburb of Manchester, which attracts similar young professionals. So it's not the prime city centre. It's just outside where young professionals would rent and purchase their first property. Um, so that's where I've conducted the research on that segment of the market. Mm. And the, well, to start off with, pounds are uh, clearly uh, very expensive in a South African term. So you're going to be paying more. Uh, for the property, mm-hmm. around around three times more. But I guess uh, and, and that's the, the starting point. But there's certain things that you have to pay for in South Africa that you don't have to pay for in the UK um, and vice versa. Just take us through those. Yeah, definitely. So like you said, I mean, the property prices are uh, more affordable in rand terms um, in South Africa. So, you know, looking at um, Paul's, for instance, for a two-bed property, um, you are obviously going to get more size, um, you know, bigger size property um, in South Africa. But you'd be looking at, say, putting down the 35% deposit on a one point. Um, seven million um, two bed. So you're looking just under six hundred thousand, and um, that would generate you 114 grams worth of income. Now, lettings fees are pretty similar. It's 10%. Um, but what you've got there's um, rates and taxes which the owners pay, whereas in um, the UK the tenants actually pay what they call a council tax. And then your levy is known as a service charge. But obviously in, in South Africa, you've got communal grounds, you know, the security of the estates and so forth. Um, whereas in the UK, it's just the upkeep of the communal areas, which they call the service charge. So, you know, it's 29,000 um, in Portsmouth, where a property in Manchester, for instance, which is almost 5 million, the service charge is only 23,000 rand. So, you know, um, there's quite a marked difference in that perspective. What they have on the other side um, is a thing called ground rent, which is essentially in the UK, you don't have um, a sectional title. What they have is the landowner would retain the, gr- the ground, which is underneath um, a block of flats, and then charge a rent, which is um, to all of the owners. 
which is a small amount. It's only, you know, 4,200 rand, which in pound terms is quite low. Um, and then obviously from a security perspective, you know, some areas, um, not only do you have your development, but you have your, the areas obviously are, are cordoned off and, um, you know, you'd pay for security or private security, um, for, for that as well in, in, the, in South Africa, which we don't have here. Um, but does that sort of make sense so far? Yeah, yeah, it does. It, it does. It's very clear. The security issue is one that I think most people can, can relate to. Something that you haven't put into, worked into your calculations are inverters and uh, generators and <laughs> things to actually uh, overcome load Oh my shedding. goodness. <laughs> and that could be a, a Yeah, no, a I certainly haven't more. even factored that one in. Definitely mm-hmm. not. Mm-hmm. But even looking at it on a normal basis here, yeah, I mean, what was quite surprising was to see that um, you know, in pulls off on that 1.7 million pound two bed, um, you'd be getting, um, a net, a net income of just 50, 50, just over 50,000, which is only a net yield of 3%. And if you consider, you know, mortgage costs at, you know, let's say 9%. So if someone got just under prime, um, you know, it's 128,000. So your actual net cash flow for the year if, and putting in 35% deposit is 77,000. So you're contributing to an investment. Whereas, you know, places which South Africans have traditionally found, felt comfortable investing in, which is Manchester, one of the suburbs called Blackfriars, called, it's an M3. You know, for a property, let's call it 5,000, you'd get income, gross income just under 300,000. And then a net income um, of two hundred thirty-five thousand, which actually is a four point seven percent yield. But the real um, benefit there is that you can obtain interest-only mortgages as a foreign investor, and that the um, interest rate is higher than what we have, um, quite considerable. But it's still only four and a half percent. So what you what you generate there from a net cash flow perspective is actually 157,000 pounds, uh, rand, sorry. So, so let me just get this right. The, the yield on the property, forgetting about capital gains, and we'll talk about that in a moment, uh, in South Africa, you'd be happy to get 3%. In the UK, you're talking on, in, in Manchester anyway, in that suburb, about nearly 5%. But more important than that is that you have a positive cash flow. And I suppose this is, this is quite key for South African investors. They don't, they don't have the position to, to keep funding uh, um, a investment into property in the UK, whereas in South Africa, you probably would have a negative cash flow. You'd have to keep investing just to, to retain the ownership of that property. Am I, am, am I making sense now, Aaron? Yeah, definitely. That's spot on. It's exactly how it works. And, you know, um, of the five buy-to-let properties that I've got, I've taken them all on interest-only mortgages. So, you know, the the income is paying for itself, and um, I'm choosing at my own accord to use that surplus to pay down um, the debts on the property, which obviously is something still to consider. But for South Africans, it's ideal because, you know, you don't know what the currency is going to go and to what extent the currency is going to fluctuate. So for an investor, um, let's talk about what they're putting in. In Manchester, on a two-bed property of 5 mil, they need to put in um, 1.7 plus purchase costs, 1.7 million. And in Birmingham, it's very similar. You know, the prices of two beds there and the area of Degbeth, it's um, 4.8 million, so it's also 1.7. But that is essentially what you're putting in. Obviously, keep a little bit on on the side for in case there's a vacancy um, or, you know, there's some repairs that need to be done. 
But what you could then benefit from is not only the positive cash flow, um, which between Birmingham at 127,000 per annum to 150,000 in um, nearly 160,000 in Manchester. So not only are you generating positive cash flow, but then you then have the benefit of, of capitalizing on this um, growth, which um, in Manchester, for instance, has been an equivalent of 7% over the last five years of capital growth per annum. And Birmingham has been on a slightly lower, um, you know, growth, it's an earlier growth stage. Um, but, you know, you're anticipating at least between 3 and 5% um, growth in Birmingham based on the changes in the transport links and the job creation and so forth. And just to clarify, we're talking 1.7 million rand, obviously not pounds, because pounds would put it out of the out of the ballpark. But 1.7 yeah, million right. that comes within the exchange control allowance. Yeah, I think the control is one million rand each. But I think you know, as a couple, which it generally is, um, as a couple investing abroad, and um, they've got that one. Um, one million that they can send out overseas, and certainly it's less than you know. I think than the the major control. You know, so in one year, because a lot of them are off plan. Um, and I know that South Africans don't like things that are long term off plan, so we really focus on ones that are um, going to be completed within um, six months. That you could, you know, certainly, you know, as a couple, put one one million each, and you wouldn't even go and you know, need to go through the jumping through the hoops of the exchange controls and uh, um, investments allowance. You mentioned Manchester and Birmingham. Many South Africans who who have lived in the UK either uh, temporarily or um, while they were younger or, or just visiting families and so on would know London a little better. Is there any are there any similar opportunities in the London commuter towns? Yeah, certainly. I think um, that's where the opportunity is, and it's really looking at the fundamentals behind that, which are driving um, the growth towards the, um, the commuter towns. Now, as you've lived in London before, you know that even uh, getting from uh, Wimbledon, where a lot of the South Africans live, to to the city of London, you're going to be commuting 45 minutes on a good day. Um, so with a lot of the uh, commuter towns, um, like um, Luton and Reading, you can get to London um, under 35 minutes. So um, from that perspective, um, it really is practically um, um, achievable. But more than that, if you look at what um, mortgage lenders have qualified their typical first-time buyers are purchasing, as a, a single person, they'd be earning 40000 a year, which is um, at its current exchange rate is 1.3 million rand. Um, and as a, um, sorry, this is a couple, but as a single would be 750,000. So as a maximum mortgage, which is really what affordability is all about, is that you get five times earnings. So the maximum mortgage that you could get would be, um, six and a half million rand or, um, or 3.7 as an individual. But the problem is that London property prices, according to Zoopla, um, are 12 million rand, which is, you know, 640,000 pounds. So it's out of the reach of, um, you know, the first time buyers. So what they're going to be targeting is places of affordability where it's easy enough to get to work. And that would be those commuter towns that you've mentioned, not necessarily Wimbledon, which is uh, which South Africans do know, little South Africa as it is. But uh, Luton, you said, what was the other the other commuter town? Yeah, it's Reading. It's Reading. Mm-hmm. 
but yeah, the, the towns are popping up, um, you know, becoming, um, you know, people are considering them more, um, you know, it's really places that are not in the zones of London, which are called like zones one, two to six. What we're talking about are ones that because of faster train times and so forth that are um, outside of the greater London um, circle, but that with the use of the railway, um, you can actually get to London. And that's what they're considering as commuter towns. So, for instance, um, Reading is the other one. Um, it's to the west of London in a place called Berkshire. So that's only 27 minutes to London Paddington. And it's already got a lot of tech um, jobs and companies there. Microsoft head office, the UK is there, Procter & Gamble, global company. But not only is it, is it great to uh, commute, but you've also got access to the South Coast, which is fantastic for um, summertime. And, the, yeah, go on. Yeah, no, I, I'm just thinking, and this all sounds really interesting. It sounds a bit like when you're investing in the stock market that you've got to go for your stock picks. You've got to be very, very sure mm. exactly where you focus on. But... What about Britain after Brexit? Uh, living here in South Africa, we, we get a, a, a very confusing picture. Uh, is it likely to impact the value of property or the capital value of properties and, and certainly the growth thereof? Yeah, I think with speaking to most of the South African investors, the concern has really been more on the currency fluctuation, thinking like, if um, Britain leaves the EU, how much is the rand going to devalue? And um, what we saw pre preceding Brexit was that um, whenever a delay was being caused, then the pound would fall down. But then, you know, when there was any indication whether it was a hard Brexit or a soft Brexit, it was still, you know, the pound would appreciate. So that's really been more of the concern. I think when you look at, like, property prices, what you've got is a local demand rather than an international demand. So the shortage of houses in the UK has been well published, you know, particularly in London. You know, they need to be building 250,000 homes and they're only building 150,000. So this is the reason why, you know, there's been such an increase in, in the London prices. And it's not just London. I mean, most of the metropoles, there's a shortage of property. And that's what really drives the growth. So what the people, investors are really more concerned about is the, is the currency fluctuation. I can't comment, you know, where the pound is really going to go up or down, but I would say that, you know, the, um, the conservatives, which is, you know, uh, Boris is leading, they've got a 48 seat majority, which is significant. And they won a lot of seats, which were traditional labor seats over 70 years. So they've got a very clear mandate, get Brexit done. And I think they really are um, driving towards that. So you take the uncertainty out of the situation. It's likely that the property market might not boom, but it certainly it will be, it will be stable. So this buy to rent area that you're talking about, which would be something that would appeal to South Africans in the way you've, you've outlined it all. How popular is it? How much stock is available to do this? Um, I mean, when I talk about popularity, there's a lot of, um, you know, American investment funds and international REITs, which are investing billions. It's like three billion that they've invested into um, what they call the build to rent market. So what they're doing, the likes of Graystar and um, Legal in general and so forth, is they've set up proprietary funds or REITs where they would take um, rich family investments and, and basically invest on a development by development basis. And they would, they would basically build a whole um, development in Birmingham, which they have done legal in general and the cell partnered on that. 
because they see it as a great rental opportunity because of the supply demand uh, fundamentals. So if there's smart money's coming in, I think, you know, it's certainly worth considering, but they would buy the whole block and then manage it themselves. Whereas obviously investors um, can follow their lead and purchase the property and then have it managed and, and benefits in the same way. But with a bit of leverage, I guess. And that's what you do. That's how you help South Africans invest there. Yeah, that's right. It's a one-touch property, you know, and we've been trading for 11 years. We source property investments across various sectors. And then we'd come to South Africa and um, meet with investors and then help them choose the property which um, is most closely aligned to their investment objectives. So, you know, in some instances, like with the ones I'm just explaining here now, have been more on the build-to-rent basis, but there are residential properties. And and they compare well, you know, because there are different um, outcomes because you benefit not only from the income, which is, as we've illustrated there, positive cash flow, but also um, there's a prospective capital growth. Whereas the other properties that we saw some more commercial properties, which – um, you know, you, instead of buying a whole student block, you could buy a, a studio within a block and have that fully managed. But that's more tailored towards someone who's either going to pay for their children's um, studies abroad or maybe looking someone looking for retirement income. But it doesn't necessarily fit with, you know, um, people who are in the prime of their business career and earning a lot of money and don't know what to do with that. And that's more what we're talking about, the bill to rent, where people that have enough income – and they want to put some of their money um, in South Africa but not have to worry about contributing towards it. That's where, where the build-to-rent properties um, in Manchester and these London commuter towns would fit in perfectly. Aaron Kirkfleet is the Investment Director of One Touch Property Investment, and this special podcast was brought to you by One Touch Property Investment. It's so amazing to see the opportunities that are available for investors around the world and indeed within South Africa. We covered two of them with uh, um, One Touch just in a, a moment ago and then earlier in the program talking with Kevin Shames uh, on the 12J companies. Well, that has been the show for today. Thanks for being with us. We look forward to being back in your company again next Monday at noon. Until then, from Alec Hogg, cheerio.